One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's a brand new year, and what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI powered all star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at Shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to Shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. This is Arscast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arscast Extra, as always, with James from Gunner Blog. James, very goodly morning to you. <laughs> How good to hear from him. What what a, what a way to start the day. Yeah, sure is. Uh, I suppose it's a goodly morning for you and congratulations. I can hear uh, by your audio that you are in a different place than the last wow. time we recorded a podcast. Does that mean that you're sort of frantically pressing buttons and shifting things around to try and make this you know, equalize. No, not really. That's not really the problem. Uh, I'm not saying that this is a problem either. I'm just saying it's it's different. And I may advise you on some uh, soundproofing techniques because it is a bit more echoey and reverby. But uh, you've uh, you've got a brand new home, and congratulations to you for that. Thanks very much. I mean, it is very empty. I think that's probably the principal audio yeah. issue. I'm also currently using as a desk um, two plastic boxes full of. Well, I can describe a sort of wedding paraphernalia and uh, a PlayStation in a box propped up all <laughs> on top of each other with my laptop sat precariously <laughs> with my mic alongside it in my bedroom. So, right. yeah, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a makeshift setup for now, but I'm hopeful of, you know, uh, things settling in, in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. Uh, the odd rug here, a bit of furniture there. It should be fine. That would be good. That would be good. I mean, I enjoyed Wolves versus Arsenal, but I can't stress enough that I was sat on the floor. So it's not ideal. Some might say, some might mm. say that uh, this is how you're going to have to watch games from now on. The superstitious listeners out sure. there will be like, James, the, the hurting yourself thing doesn't really work anymore, or maybe it's a, del- a delayed reaction. Um, but this sitting on the floor thing, that could be the way to go between now and, well, until we lose a game again. Maybe. I mean, fortunately, during lockdown, I have sort of 
uh, grown the size of the cushioning that allows me to sit on the floor. So I am ready for this challenge if it's what the people demand. All right. So you said you enjoyed Wolves versus Arsenal. Uh, I did too. I did too. It wasn't really one of those games that I have to say I, I enjoyed while it was happening. Mm. But once it was over, once we got that second goal and once we had that assurance, I was able to look back on the performance and and uh, really enjoy quite a lot about it, uh, even if it was quite pragmatic. You know, we have this idea of like, what's a good performance? What is playing well? It's, you know, being exciting from an attacking point of view, creating lots of chances. And I think there's a much more pragmatic element to what Mikel Arteta is doing at this moment in time. He said afterwards, didn't he? We, we, we can't go and batter teams for 95 minutes. We have to find a different way. You know, I'm paraphrasing here a bit. But, you know, one way of doing that is is more or less um, nullifying or cancelling out the opposition from an attacking point of view. Mm-hmm. And to be able to do that takes a lot of effort, a lot of organisation, a game plan that you put in place that has to be followed through almost to the letter by every single player on the pitch and not just the 11 who start, the the players who come on as substitutes. And I think, you know, 99% bar a couple of moments for Wolves, that's what we got from Arsenal. Yeah, I think so. Things went pretty much to plan. I mean, I'd be lying if I said I was loving the game in the moment either. I sort of think Mm. the first half particular, I was like, oh, there's not much tempo to this. It wasn't, it was sort of one of those Project Restart games, wasn't it? Where you were like, ah, this hasn't really caught light yet for at least half an hour, I thought. But then in the context, you know, looking at the the result, I mean, it's a fantastic result, first and foremost, it really is. I think Arsenal hadn't beaten Wolves, had they, since they returned to the Premier League? Certainly not away from home and yeah we uh, we were just very very we were very solid really which you know it's not often you get to say that about Arsenal too yeah I mean there are there are uh, things you could look at from the the, the the starting lineup point of view and you know if you were to go to a game away from home hmm. against Wolves you know, a really exciting team, a difficult team to play against. I think Arteta called them beforehand. He said they were complicated. They're a complicated team to play against because they're tactically very well set up. They've got players who can hurt you on the pitch. They've got players who can hurt you on the bench. Um, you know, there's some real attacking quality in that side, some creativity, players who can get goals pretty much out of nothing. You know, they've got a, you know, good free kick takers. They've got long shot. Uh, uh, players, long shot players. I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about here, but you know what I mean? They've got players who can crack them in from distance. We've seen it before. So the threats aren't really uh, in one particular area. It's not like you're, you're marking one star man and that's kind of all the threat that they have. They've got threats everywhere. And then you, you look at the lineup and you think, this is Arsenal going to Wolves with David Luiz, Shkodren Mustafi and say Kolasinac in a back three. And we've come out of it with a clean sheet. Mm. Um, you know, mm. I think <laughs> I think there's a lot of credit to go to the defenders. Um, you know, for the way that they played for the most part, but but also Arteta in the way that he set up the team and the way that they competed. I think Arsenal made 35 tackles in the game, which demonstrates and illustrates the kind of commitment that was on the on the pitch. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think the other thing to say about Wolves, by the way, is that they haven't conceded many at all. I don't think they'd conceded until they played us in the, you know, since the resumption of football. So they are a very tactically adept team uh, and they're prepared to sit and wait and catch you when they can. But Arsenal, not just the three centre-halves, let's also mention the fact that it's the deputy goalkeeper playing. You've got a guy playing at right back yeah. who is making his debut for the club. That was a kind of makeshift defence of sorts. And yet we kept the clean sheet and we looked relatively solid in doing so. I think, I'm with you, I think some credit's got to go to the central defenders, but I think the majority of the credit has to go to Mikel Arteta because he put those guys in a structure, in a shape that organised them, that protected them, that gave them balance. And, you know, that has been painfully missing from Arsenal for, for the majority of the season, really. And to see... Just the start of that there, just how having, having something to fall back on, something that we can rely on, was very, very, very encouraging. Yeah, I think the thing that really pleased me was the fact that, you know, as I mentioned, you, you've got to get buy-in from the players mm. to play like that. And it is yeah. one of those games where the margins are really fine. Like, we could, have, we could have conceded a goal and it's gone the other way and maybe we wouldn't be looking at this performance in quite the, the positive way that we are. We'd be talking about, why didn't we create more chances or why can't we control the game a bit better or be a bit more dominant in possession um sure. you know so it is a, it is a fine margin in in that regard but you know to play that way and it's kind of brave in a way to 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 set up and to play that way because you know you're not really going to have a huge number of chances to score the goals that you need to win the game so you're mm. opening yourself up to a, a criticism if you don't uh, you know take the opportunities that you get when they come we did on the day and that was that was a really good thing and we'll come to that but but there is the commitment there and there is this idea that the players on the pitch are absolutely willing to do what he wants them to do they are you know to go back to that phrase that is used on the boat you know these are players who are willing to do the non-negotiables these things that Arteta keeps saying and those are first and foremost in the in the current setup in the in the circumstances that we have with the squad that we have a squad let's make it clear that Mikel Arteta is insistent publicly and I'm sure privately needs to be improved if we are to catch the likes of Liverpool, Man City, and, and even the teams above us in the table at the moment. So, you know, he recognizes that, recognizes that some of the players that he has and has to work with are not the players that, that he needs to take the club to the next level. And some of those players know that as well. Whether it's explicit or not, I'm not sure. But they're willing to do the work to maybe even try and convince Arteta that they're they're part of or, or could be part of what he's trying to do. And I think, you know, to, to see that level of commitment, you know, in our fifth away game as well, we've played six games since the restart. Five of them have, uh, have been away from home. It, it's a challenge and uh, it's really, really pleasing to see that that effort from the guys. It is, and I also think that certain players that we as fans might have our opinions about, Arteta doesn't necessarily think of them in the same way, and he makes his judgments based on different criteria, and clearly one of those criteria is the level of commitment that they show to the project, to the plan, to the team. And I think people like... I don't know, I mean, Shaka, Mustafi, maybe even someone like Kalasnach to an extent, while we might have our reservations, and I think understandably so, we also have to support the manager when he chooses those players because he sees what they're doing every single day and he, he believes in them. That's a really good point. Uh, you know, he did say when he came in, everybody gets a clean slate. 
Mm. That was one of the first things that he said. So if our if our judgments and our opinions on players are informed by what we've seen over the last number of years, and I think that's perfectly legitimate, Arteta's view of those players is going to be bit, uh, based on what they have done for him since he took over. Like he might have had preconceived mm-hmm. notions about some of the players. He must have. You know, he, he was at Man City, for example, when Mustafi um, did that thing in the in the, the Carling Cup final, whatever the fuck Cup yes. final it is, you know, that kind of yes. defending against Aguero, which is part of the reason why we might still have some doubts about Mustafi. And I've got a question about him or, or questions about him, which we'll do in part two. Uh, but, you know, he's been true to his word in the sense that he said when he came in, everyone gets a clean slate. You're judged on what you do for me. And, you know, um, when you look at some of the results and some of the performances and, and the way some of the players have turned things around compared to where they were before he came in, you can understand why he would have perhaps more faith in them than we do. Yeah, I mean, there's a, an interesting story about that, which features a sort of surprising candidate in some ways, which is that apparently Arteta arrived at Arsenal with some preconceptions about Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. I think he'd heard some stories out of Germany and wasn't sure about his professionalism, his commitment. And I think he, he was pretty clear about it with him when he came in. Within two weeks, he completely changed his mind and told him, listen, you're the captain. I'm, you know, the example you show is outstanding. Mm. But it just shows that his mind was flexible. You know, even things that he had heard or learned in previous jobs, he was willing to learn about new players, new things. And I, I, I think that, yeah, we do have to try and... We have to try and support his judgment because he's got a lot more information mm. than us. And crucially, he can assess clearly sort of who is buying in here and who's not. And I think even... I think you can see it on the field when a player is buying in and when they're not. Yeah. You know, even someone like... I mean, we'll get onto him, I'm sure, but Ainsley Maitland-Niles came on in this game and I thought you saw a guy who, in an unfamiliar role, immediately looked to sort of take on the task at hand yep. and sort of be keen to be part of this this team. Absolutely great example. Yeah, we'll come to him. Um, we were without Nicolas Pepe because uh, his wife went into labour mm. Uh, before the game uh, I like this question uh, from Harry on Twitter at Harry underscore Herniman who said is it just coincidence that Nicolas Pepe scored those two free kicks against Vittoria exactly nine months ago which uh, <laughs> <laughs> I thought was quite good anyway congratulations to Nicolas Pepe and his family but he was absent and, and unavailable to Mikel Arteta so he had a little bit of a choice to make in terms of how he filled that role and He went with Bakayo Saka. I suppose the other player he would have been thinking of is Reese Nelson, who's perhaps a bit more naturally suited to that uh, right-wing position, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Look, Saka for for Pepe, it's not exactly like for like, but it's a left-footer playing on the right for a left-footer playing on the right. I suppose the gamble he had to take was Saka's... He doesn't look comfortable there, you know, and that's not the first time he's played there. It's not the first time he's looked, um, in comparison to what he does elsewhere, you know, less comfortable on the pitch. And I think that was true against Wolves. But what he can bring you was what we got from him just before halftime, that little extra something, that little bit of that little bit of magic that Saka has, that, you know, so far we haven't really seen from Reese Nelson in an Arsenal shirt. Mm. Yeah, I mean, as much as it was Danny Ceballos in the last game being coached through the first half, I thought it was 
Bukayo Saka in yeah. this one. You know, you could hear Arteta kind of trying to get him in the right place to receive the ball. And actually, a couple of times, the centre-halves, you know, Louise and Mustafi, were a bit frustrated, I think, because they couldn't find their out ball on that side. And that's just Saka not really knowing the position particularly well. It's also interesting, isn't it, that they've shifted kind of the the, the the orientation of the attack slightly so that the right winger is now playing more inside with the mm. wing back going outside them. And yet we still haven't seen Nicola Pepe in that role. I'm very intrigued to see how he does when we get him in there, potentially a bit closer to goal. I think that could really suit him. But Saka... Listen, he, he always gives you those moments, doesn't he, where he just comes alive. And what a fantastic goal it was, too. A nice little move as well. You know, decent crossfield pass from uh, Cedric, I think it was. I think we then, got a little bit lucky with the pass, to be fair. Yeah, it, it was one of those. Out, yeah, it? it was. I think the defender kind of misjudged it. But yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, yeah, sorry to cut across you. Go on. No, no, no. I was just going to say that then, you know, Aubameyang with Tierney on the overlap. I mean, I, I am enjoying the way that these wingbacks are kind of, like I say, slightly shifting the shape of the attack and allowing those wide forwards to get into narrow positions pretty mm. regularly. Yeah, and look, Aubameyang in a central position playing the ball out wide to Tierney, you know, uh, people have spoken about Aubameyang, haven't they, as just this kind of, well, the reason he doesn't play as a striker is he, he can't link the play. And I don't mm. think that's true. You know, we saw him with an assist for Shaka in the last game. This uh, this game, he was part of the move. He was part of another move, I think, um, late on when Lacazette had come on uh, for the Willock chance. You know, yeah. so I think that that is part of part of his game. He is capable of it. Um, but that's maybe a debate for another day. But but a little bit of good fortune in terms of the cross from Tierney. It got a deflection, but but Saka. Uh, what a finish! What a what a fantastic finish, and what a week for that for that young man at Arsenal Football Club. Yeah, I mean, it was written, wasn't it, that he would score the goal? And, and actually, the bit of fortune we got on the cross, I think, makes the finish all the more difficult in some ways. He's got to react to that really, really late, and he strikes it so well. I must say, when I first saw it, I thought he's caught that on the shin, the way it sort of floats mm. into the far corner. But actually, it's a it's a relatively clean strike and a brilliant goal. And I mean, I do think that he has goals in him. And that's one of the things that makes you want him to play in areas higher up the pitch is that we desperately need players who can finish. And he is one of them. He really is. Um, and is a, a really important time to score a goal as well. You know, and, and as I said earlier, the, the amount of chances we were going to get in this game, I think, was always going to be limited. So being efficient with the chances that we had w- was super important. Um, mm. So, yeah, I mean, look... Taking- it changed the complexion of the game a bit, didn't it? I mean, f- we had had a lot of possession in the first yeah. half, but not masses of penetration. Eddie and Ketia hit the post, didn't they? Again, from a... Good save as well, I think, yeah. A good save, yeah. I think it was a slightly freak situation. A deflected pass went through to him, and he, he was really sharp. He took it first time. But there wasn't a huge amount of other opportunities in the game for either side, to be honest. So to get the goal when we did and give us that advantage heading in tough time was very, very valuable. Yeah. Um, Wolves did threaten in the second half. I think the big chance came for Traore, didn't it? Uh, when he went through, it was probably the only time our defence was was taken apart. Uh, it was a bit too easy and he went through one-on-one. Martinez, Emi Martinez, another good game from him. Uh, I think we got a question uh, on him in part two, so we'll leave that. Um, he, he clipped it over the bar again yeah. sometimes. I he'd score there. Yeah, so did I. Um but you do need to ride your luck a little bit. I think what was quite interesting, and, and I think something that's 
uh, I've seen a couple of questions. And I'm sorry, I don't have one here, but it was something I, I uh, that occurred to me uh, as well. The drinks breaks are kind of yes. handy because you can be playing poorly and you go, well, we get to half time and we'll sort this out in the dressing room. The manager can bring the players in and have a chat. And we have this opportunity and other teams have it too. It's not just for us, but we have an opportunity in games to take a break and for Arteta to, to, to deal with whatever issues he is seeing on the pitch. And it's quite noticeable, isn't it? That the players, um, uh, they're not sort of standing around just looking around and, you know, taking a drink and not paying any attention to what the manager is saying. They're switched on when he's talking to them, when he's giving them instructions. And I think we've kind of benefited a bit from those little moments in the game where we can stop, take a break, because in the second half, I think Wolves were a lot more dominant, certainly in possession. They had a lot more of the ball. Uh, We weren't quite as threatening, um... And that's the nature of the game, and that's the way that the momentum in games goes. They're at home, they're they're losing. Mm. You know, it's it's natural that they're going to be a little more uh, adventurous or whatever it might be. But it gave Arteta a chance to sort of just take the players and 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 deal with with some of the issues. And I think we were better um, after that. And of course, the substitutions which will come to as well. Yeah, I mean, you almost need to think of the game in quarters at this point because managers do get that opportunity for a bit of a team talk, a bit of a, a rejig. Is it right that they're not allowed to make substitutions during the water break? Is that correct? I don't know. I mean, I presume... I don't know, actually. I mean, it, it, I presume... Someone told me that over the weekend and I was like, that seems crazy, but apparently that's true. Right. But, um, yeah, nevertheless... Well, yeah, that could be true because we did have... We had... Was it Bellerin and Willock ready to come on just before the drinks break. Mm, Is that right? right? And then the play went on and it took another couple of minutes for us to get them on. Yeah, I I think that might be right. But listen, uh, we're often wrong, so let's be careful. But (laughs) nevertheless, nevertheless, um, I do think that it's a very helpful opportunity, especially if you haven't got the momentum at that point. And if you look at Arsenal's last two league games, I think I'm right in saying that Norwich actually enjoyed the better of the second half, you know, or certainly they were more in the game. And then when the drinks break came, things swung again in our favour. So Arteta is using those opportunities to affect change and influence games. I think that's really positive. And on the subject of substitutions, Mm. you know, something that we've queried in Arteta before, his game management and his changes, I thought once again, he got it really spot on in this game. Yeah. 100%. 100%. Kieran Tierney was tired, I think, after, uh, you know, putting in a really good shift in the last couple of games. Yeah. I was, you know, when, when he made the change, I was a bit, hmm, not sure Sa- about this. Why doesn't he put Saka on the left and move Maitland-Niles to the right-hand side, which is A, where he wants to play and is B, more natural for him. And certainly mm-hmm. it's more natural for Saka, but I think he had... I think he had an idea in mind of, you know, he wanted to protect Saka a little bit as well because um, he's played a lot. And I think he had a plan for his his other substitutions, um, you know, to, to slightly offset that. So it was one which I thought was curious at the time, but it worked out really well. I think you're right to say Maitland-Niles came on and immediately got stuck in. I think one of his first involvements was a successful tackle on Traore, kind of set the tone, gave him confidence, but he looked like 
as you said, a player who was willing to, you know, do exactly what the manager wanted, A, for the team, but B, because he's buying into this idea of what's required uh, to play under Mikel Arteta. Yeah, it, it was an interesting change. And I sort of thought, I can't remember if the commentator slightly implied that Tierney had been sort of dragged after struggling to deal with Traore. I didn't really feel like that because Traore, you know, he had been playing primarily centrally until that point. It was only really then in the game that he was pulling very wide. But Maitland-Niles came on and I was thinking, right, well, he could switch Cedric to the left-hand side. A lot of noise has been made about him being able to play both mm. sides. He could switch Saka there. But he kind of went Maitland-Niles in the left wing-back role. And between him and Kolasinac, I thought they handled one of the most difficult players to handle in the Premier League in Traore really pretty well. And, you know, I guess Kolasinac had the power and, and Maitland-Niles the speed. And he was good going forward too. There were a couple of moments where he was high up the pitch, winning tackles in that area, interacting with other people. I thought it was a really, really good cameo and not his first uh, good performance in the last couple of weeks. And it's a it's a fascinating case study because I really do believe that in January, February, everybody at Arsenal expected Aylan Zumaila Niles to leave this summer. Mm. Uh, I think even he expected it to a certain extent, but maybe with coronavirus and some of the sort of economic implications, they're, they'll be looking at that again now. And he is a very valuable squad player because he can fill so many gaps in the team that's yeah that's a good point um and if maybe we have to have a slightly smaller squad you know to have a player who is versatile yeah uh, could could be very useful um again it, you know it depends what what maitland niles wants from his career it depends what kind of vision arteta is going to sell him um, and whether Arteta wants to keep him, but it's, he strikes me as a player that, you know, he, he would want to keep because of, you know, those qualities that you mentioned and also, um, you know, his age um, and just what we're going to be able to do in the market in, in the summer might be, um, might inform some of the uh, decisions that we make in terms of who we want to let go. Mm-hmm. Um the, the changes that he brought on Willock and um, Bellerin for Cedric and Saka, wasn't it? Yeah, it was Cedric and Saka. Mm. Um, I think both those players, again, like Maitland-Niles, are straight into it. Um, you know, got yeah. got to the pace of the game very quickly. Uh, Bellerin got some good tackles in. Um, Joe Willock, I think, is showing himself to be a player who can make an impact as a sub, even if it's not always spectacular. He tends to get involved quite quickly, doesn't he? He does, he does. And sort of using that kind of Eddie Jones rugby language of having starters and finishers and no substitutes, as it were. Mm. Uh, Willock is a finisher. I really do think that he comes on late in games and makes things happen. Um, I mean, he he sat up a goal. He probably definitely should have scored a goal. Uh, And I think he just has... It's partly his energy and his athleticism that just makes him really difficult to live with in the last 20 minutes of a game. So, yeah, he's versatile too as well. You know, he's kind of playing often as this kind of inside right forward, but he could also play in central midfield. He can play as a number 10 a little bit. So Mm. I think he's another really useful player and I liked liked his impact and I was delighted, I've got to say, for the the final substitute, uh, well, final pair of substitutes, Lucas Torreira coming back from injury and then Alex Lacazette at long last getting a goal on the Long overdue, long overdue. Willock involved. I I have to say, I've got to give some credit to Mustafi for this one because there were a couple of like wishy-washy headers 
um, and he just took control and and I remember that, thumped yeah. a header forward, and from there we picked up the ball. Willock to Lacazette, really good touch, uh, really good first touch from Lacazette in the box. Um, one of those where you know it could easily have been a penalty as well, mm-hmm. uh, but he got there sharp before the defender. The finish, maybe a bit of luck going in off the post, but look, it doesn't really matter when you're. When you're, what, what is it, 16, 17 months without a goal away from home for it to go in and go in off the post, <sighs> you know, it's a long time coming that goal, but a hugely important goal as well, you know, in terms of the game and, you know, 1-0 is always a, a dangerous lead, um, particularly when you're a team that is and can be a little bit brittle at times, uh, you know, that, that second goal basically sealed the deal. Uh, on what was a, a hugely important win, a very big win. You know, it's a, it's a European places six-pointer. It is. It really is. It, it does good things for us in the table. And it is incredibly fine margins. I mean, if Wolves, if Lacazette hits the post and it comes back out, mm. Wolves nick an equaliser, we're analysing this game in a completely different fashion. Although I would say that going to Molyneux, I think most of us probably would have taken a draw. So to win is yeah. a tremendous, tremendous result. What were the predictions? I think I said draw and you said defeat. I said it? loss, yeah. yeah. And I, you know, I didn't think that was being unnecessarily negative. I think, you know, looking at the, the form of those two teams across the season, I was not filled with optimism. But uh, it, it casts a very different light on our on our position, on our results since the restart. You know, you could look at the defeat of Brighton and say, well, we were pretty unfortunate that day with a few different things. Um, And yeah, I'm really pleased for Mikel Arteta because it felt a little bit like the wind had been sucked out of his sails a little, you know, after after City and Brighton. But he's really, really helped steady the ship. Mm. And I think just enormous credit to him, really, because it's not easy to to roll with those punches and rebuild and keep going. And I think Arsenal have managed to do that. And now, where are we? Seventh, you mm. know, uh, three points off Wolves, uh, six points off Manchester United in fifth. It's, you know, it's a contest, at least, which is something. Yeah, there's something there now. And look, I think it's worth pointing out that Wolves have played three games since the restart and mm. won all three without conceding a goal. Mm. This was our... Sixth game, that was their fourth game. So we played a fifth, couple of extra fifth away games. from home. Fifth well. away from home. Um, I really enjoyed Arteta afterwards when it was sort of put to him about fatigue and heavy legs, and he said, "No, no, no, that's all in our heads. That's mm. all in our heads." Um, which of course is untrue. Uh, because it is in the legs and physically it's been a very demanding time for the team because of the three month break and everything else. Um, there is, there are physical elements for us to deal with, but rather than talk about them, uh, and make an issue of them publicly, he's saying, no, this is, this is in our heads. You know, we've got the ability to, you know, to, to overcome this, you know, the fatigue that you feel, um, you know, you can, operate a little bit mind over matter in that way. And and part of that is confidence. And part of that is, you know, when you're winning games, your legs don't feel half as heavy, uh, heavy as they do when you're losing. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're right. It's a, it's a confidence trick in some ways. Yeah. And it's good, good management from Arteta. You don't want to give players an excuse publicly that can sort of creep into their minds uh, because it doesn't get any easier this schedule in terms of what happens next. You know, it's it's Leicester. Well, we're, we're speaking Monday. It's Leicester mm. tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, and then away, of course, to Tottenham at the weekend for what feels like a, a really big game now. I mean, listen, for all mm. the talk of Europe, 
I, I can't help but look at this Premier League table and look at Arsenal's position and the next person I look for is Tottenham. You know, the order has been yeah. upset in the last couple of years and it's time we put that right. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a, that's a game for the weekend um, and we can talk mm. about that a bit later on in the week, I'm sure. Um, I mean, is there anything else from this performance, anything else that, that stood out to you? Um, from this or or is it just one of those games that because of the, the schedule that we have we have to enjoy it and put it away you know consign it to history it's on the shelves now as an Arsenal win you know but but a, a one one from which I think we can take a lot of positivity a lot of encouragement yeah and when was the last time Arsenal had a result this good away from home in the Premier League genuinely I, I don't know um, I think it was the first time we had beaten a team who were above us in the league at the start of the play since 2015. Get out of Leicester. Really? Yeah. Wow. I think that's right. So, I mean, in that respect, and, and when you think about our record against the top six, that tallies, that makes perfect sense. Mm. I, I think that puts it in perspective. Like, it's a really, really excellent result given where this team are in their development. And I just am really pleased because... To reiterate what I was saying earlier, I felt after not just the, the the matches against City and Brighton, but everything that was happening away from the pitch as well, people were thinking, oh no, here we go again. Mm. You know? and, and a little bit of that belief was sapped, for, I think, from the players and the fans. And it's just been restored very, very swiftly. And that's a really good sign that we've got someone at the helm in Mikel Arteta who, who knows what he's doing and where he's going. And a big theme this week has been about him talking about you know the upcoming transfer window and the backing he requires and how important it is that everyone is as committed to the direction of travel you know including the executives including the yeah. owner and results like this help him make that case and help him get that backing and get that support and that's a really positive thing because he needs it and he deserves it I think based on what he's doing yeah absolutely um you know I think he's been very very straight about what he sees as the requirements you know from his players we can talk about that and we can talk about those non-negotiables and and being demanding uh, of the players that he has to carry out the game plans that he has you know in this uh, current weird little uh, end of season um I was going to say tournament. It feels kind of like a tournament because every game yeah. kind of means something. But, but you know, he's been very clear with those players and some of them are clearly on board. Some of them, it appears, are not. We'll talk about that now in just a sec. Mm. Um, but I like that about how straightforward he is with, with you know, what he's talking about uh, when it comes to transfers, when it comes to the transfer market. He's saying, look, I know this is a weird time. I know there are coronavirus implications, financial implications, but, you know, we have to improve now. We have to improve the squad. And that's kind of putting it up to the executives. And I like that too. And I like the point you made about how winning games and, and you know, getting that buy-in from the players allows or, or certainly strength, uh, strengthens the case uh, that he's making to the executives, to the owners, about investment yep. in the squad. And, and look, it may not simply be a financial thing. They're going to have to wheel and deal they're going to have to be creative, perhaps, in the transfer market. They're going to have to do deals which, you know, maybe uh, would have been unusual or considered unusual before uh, COVID-19. But this is the world that we're living in now. Um, I, I'm a little less sure of what the market is going to be like. I was looking at um, 
some of the deals that have happened. Who's that that kid from Birmingham that's going to Borussia Dortmund? Uh, oh, Bellingham. Uh, Bellingham, yeah. And what's that, 20-odd million quid mm. for a 17-year-old? That doesn't feel like a deal that's been massively impacted by the financial uh, crisis that football is, is undergoing because of COVID-19, does it? I mean, I think... Um, Who's the the young striker that we sold to Juventus? Oh, um, yes. Steffi Mavidi. Steffi Mavidi, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he's gone to Montpellier from Juventus for something like seven or eight million euros. Yeah. Again, you know, it's more or less what you would expect him to fetch in the market beforehand. So I wonder quite what the implications are going to be like. Um, from an Arsenal point of view, we don't know, but but certainly Arteta is not really suggesting that uh, he's going to be taking too many excuses when it comes to rebuilding his squad. Yeah, the Bellingham one's interesting because I think that deal, certainly between the clubs, was kind of struck a while ago. But you're right in that they haven't sort of sought to alter it. I think it's interesting that those transfers we're talking about are younger players. And I do wonder if people will think, well, you know, it's kind of like buy a property, he says, hopefully, in that like it's a long-term investment and mm. maybe the market will uh, recover somewhat. And I do think that maybe that that's where we'll see more investment from, from bigger teams is in, you know, teenagers, guys in their early 20s. I think it'll be different for anyone who's, mm. who's not going to have resale value. I think it'll be very difficult to get any kind of fee for them as we saw with with Mkhitaryan but yeah I, I and, and and you know Thomas Partey is the name that keeps coming up and you know David Ornstein ran a story the other week saying that Arsenal are stepping up their interest there you know that would not be a cheap deal that would be no. you know a £40 million deal or something like that so the, cl- the fact that the club are even talking or investigating the possibility of something like that to me suggests they know there will still be a market of sorts. And I think as well, the other thing to consider here is that uh, Arsenal don't exist in a vacuum. We're, you know, the top four, if that's our sort of short-term aim over the next couple of years, is competed for by several different teams. And if we look at Chelsea, they are spending money. You know, they, mm. they have money available and they are seemingly improving. They're already in the top, top four as far as the table goes. Manchester United spent a lot of money in January on Bruno Fernandes and they do look a little bit like something is happening there. Something is finally clicking for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer with, with Pogba and Fernandes next to each other and the front three they have. They'll spend again as well in the summer, yeah, for sure. They will. They will. So so Arsenal have to look at their competitors here and you know maybe Leicester won't quite keep up the pace. Maybe Spurs aren't in a great situation, but there are other teams. Mm. Wolves will spend again, I would expect, you know, given the way they're structured. So I think Arsenal have to look at the competition and realise for us to even keep pace, we need to be active. We need to bring yeah. players. Um, and we need to move players on. And, that, and that's where, that's kind of the usefulness of the non-negotiables. You know, it, it does make Arteta's job easier for him in some ways. If someone doesn't toe the line, well, they're out the door. And, and I think in some cases that'll be easier than others, but it, it kind of makes those decisions for the club and in that respect, in a summer in which we probably have to sell somebody, I don't think that's a bad thing. Yeah, you make a great point there about uh, what the other teams are going to do. You know, we obviously have to improve. And first and foremost, we look at our squad and we think about where we're going to try and make things better. 
Um, but we can't be blind to what the other teams are going to do. No. Chelsea have already spent. City are going to spend. You know, they're going to flex. City and Liverpool are yeah. kind of their own thing. Yeah. Time, exactly, you know? they are. But 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 you know, City are going to flex their financial muscle again because you know, having been champions last year and having gone through this season, what they've lost nine games is it in the Premier League? Yeah. Um, is that more than us? I think it probably is because we are the draw masters, aren't we? Yeah. The draws are really what's undone us. We haven't actually lost that many games. I think we've, we've lost, lost eight. So, we've lost yeah. fewer games this season than than Manchester City, who have only drawn three, but we've drawn thirteen. So yeah. you know, you could you could make a case, maybe, maybe that the the margin for improvement is is not that big if we could turn you know, four, five, six, seven of those draws into wins, you're immediately adding a lot of points. But, you know, City will be hurting because they've uh, finished so far behind Liverpool. Liverpool won't rest on their laurels either. Uh, I, I don't see Leicester really as as a team that's going to be top four um, in the in the long term to be honest. I could be wrong there, of course, but uh, I think they've just sort of had a really, really good season. Um, So, yeah, looking at what the other teams do, looking at who we want, who's ready to play, who's not ready to play, and making our decisions based on that, but also the knowledge that, you know, to keep pace with the the big teams, we are going to have to to invest. Just, you know, briefly, and I don't want to have this discussion for too long because we've done it before but obviously the absence the continued absence of Matteo Genduzzi from the squad this is the fourth game in a row that he's not been involved in Mesut Ozil has a a back injury or he has a back injury whatever you want to believe I don't want to go down that road again Uh, but I think the Genduzzi one is more interesting because of you know what's happened Um, I have to say that if it's a case that Genduzi is refusing to get on board, if he's refusing to apologize, having been disciplined, if it's intransigence or petulance or whatever it is, I feel like he is hammering nails into his own coffin here and he's letting the team down. You know, the the schedule is so hectic. We have a game, you know, on Tuesday uh, or tomorrow, rather. We've just played on Saturday. It'll be our seventh game since lockdown. We need as many fit and healthy players as possible. And if his own behavior or unwillingness to address whatever disciplinary issue that he has been pulled up over, it reflects really badly on him. I have to say. It does, yeah. Because you would imagine, you know, our t- what could we can infer from Arteta's language, this thing of something needs to change and it hasn't changed. The situation mm. is still the same. Clearly, some parameters were set for Gunduzi in terms of what was required. Uh, he hasn't chosen to meet them. And I think, you know, we've praised his personality at times. We've praised the fact mm. that he's, you know, not afraid of anything and has enormous reserves of self-belief. But there has to be a line there, particularly with such a young professional as well in a squad with some very experienced international Mm. players. You know, you have to, you have to take responsibility. And I I think for all the talk of forgiveness and for all the talk of Arteta's all about clean slates and second chances, I might be being premature, but I think this is done. I think he's. I think he's gone. We had a question on the Discord from Jez Box who says, "Is Genduzi already past the point of redemption?" 
I think uh, what all well, the biggest problem for him is how little time there is before the transfer window to fix it. Yeah. You know, there there is a few weeks. He is behind the pecking order, certainly now in terms of Shaka and Tobias. You'd have to think Lucas Torreira, who's now back yeah. as well. Uh, even Joe Willock, I think to an extent, probably would get a game before him at this point. Maitland-Niles would have a shout as well. Um, and I think th- that he has done serious, serious damage to his standing with the manager and probably his standing with the fans because we can all see what Arteta's trying to do, the culture he's trying to build. And for a guy, however talented he might be at 19, 20 years of age, to kind of, <laughs> to not be prepared to do what it takes mm. to be part of that, um, I think it's really disappointing. It's really disappointing. And it makes, like I said, it makes certain decisions easier. Mm. What do you think? Look, you can never say never. Mm. Um you look at what the situation with Granite Shaka was when Arteta took over. Everyone was expecting Shaka to leave. Uh, you know, he was, you know, him and his agent were talking quite publicly, weren't they, about the, what was, I can't remember who the interest Hertha was Berlin. from. Hertha Berlin. Yeah. Um, you know, and all of a sudden, well, not all of a sudden, I mean, I think Shaka deserves a lot of credit, to be honest. And I think it's worth pointing out that since he came back into the team, uh, you know, it's not entirely down to him, of course. It's never entirely down to one player, but I think our midfield is better with him in it. Um, so he, he deserves credit. But And you can just see that, that um, you know, players can get a second chance. Players can take those chances. Uh, and there's one of those that we're going to talk about in part two as well. So you can never say never. But at this point, you know, in the context of everything that's going on, for a player of his age to to be basically keeping himself out of the team because of his unwillingness to change what the manager wants him to change, like you say, it's really disappointing. Uh, and if you're asking me to put like some money on it, I think he's done. I think he's done. Yeah, me too. Mm-hmm. Me too. And, and like you say, you can never say never, but that's the, the impression that I have. And mm. Arsenal have already investigated the possibility of how he could be used in the transfer market, be that, you know, in exchange or in a sale. Um, and I think that that kind of tells its own story. And it, it is actually a shame because he is the sort of player in terms of his age profile and his talent that we should absolutely want in the squad, you know, and I, and I don't think anyone yeah. is denying that, you know, if you look at the young players we have, he ought to be part of that core really, but um, it, he has a history like this, which is very combustible. It was a bit like that at PSG. It was very much like that at Lorient. Arsenal knew that when they signed him and I think they hoped that they could what was, own him. What was the story with him in uh, PSG? PSG, it was sort of primarily that he felt he wasn't playing and he wasn't happy about it. I mean, it's not it's not as bad as at Lorient where he was kind of <laughs> calling out players 10 years as senior in the dressing room and, mm. you know, telling people. But I mean, that was kind of what was positive about him. At PSG, he just was in a generation with some very big physical players and he felt that they were prioritised over him. And so he made a decision to leave and in those few months before he left things got a bit tense and a bit problematic as you mm. could expect with any player who's sort of kind of headed out of an academy. But, you know, he had trouble at Lorient too. He was banned effectively from the first team for a substantial period after refusing to apologise after a row in a dressing room in which it was said in the French press to have become physical. So, you know, he he's always had that 
element of his personality. And Arsenal knew that. And they thought, A, it might be part of what makes him a success. And B, it needs to be honed. And mm. it seemed like, weirdly, Gendouzi and Unai Emery had a really positive relationship, didn't they? And, and actually, when Emery left, I think Gendouzi was one of the first team players who was sort of most disappointed because Emery had been such a big proponent of him and a big believer in him. Arteta has also given him plenty of opportunities too, but for some reason they just don't seem to see eye to eye. And it is a shame, but mm. what, what can you do? You know, when a player won't buy in, I'd far rather they were sold than they were just on our books, not con- contributing. Yeah, look, I think if you have if you have standards and you're demanding that everybody maintain or keep to those standards and then you make an exception for any player, whether he's a young player, a senior player, or whatever it is, you compromise yourself as a manager. Your authority is compromised. So, uh, you know, if people are unhappy with Arteta about Ganduzi being out of the team, I think, you know, you have to look at the bigger picture in the whole thing and, and he has to deal with this uh, in the way that he's dealing with it. It's up to the player you know, to get back on board. And, um, you know, the good ship Arteta is sailing off into the distance without Matteo Ganduzzi, it seems. so. Um, and it's sailing well at the moment. I mean, Ganduzzi's that not is, idiot. Yeah, that's the other part of it. You know, since he's been out of the team, we've won four games in a row. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's, not, it's not a great reflection on him. I know it's a separate issue, but, you know, it doesn't look great. Well, also, he'll be looking at this and thinking... You know, I mean, I mean he, he's it's if he wants to be part of it, time is running out. Let's yeah, put it like that. For sure, for sure. Okay, look, we'll take a quick break. Uh, we'll come back with your questions and more in part two right after this. Cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's a brand new year, and what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of. Those I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify magic, your AI powered all star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog.
Welcome back to the Arsecast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you sent to us on Twitter at GunnerBlog and at Arsblog on the Arsblog Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the Arsblog, and also on the Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon. I'm going to start with one from Facebook. It comes from Ian Metcalf, who says, Arteta says that we're not in a position to be able to batter teams for 95 minutes. What do we need to change to be capable of that? Why am I bothering to ask? You don't don't read Facebook anyway. Two laughing faces. Oh, well, we won't bother us answering that question then, Ian. Don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, no, just giving it some brief. I, I think we need a, you know, a, a reasonable defensive platform in midfield to be able to properly attack. So I think we're putting those pieces in, in place, you know. Yeah, slowly. and did you? I don't know if you saw, but there was a, a good tweet doing the round which kind of had our, our stats under Arteta versus our mm. stats under Emery. And we've scored almost an identical amount of goals. I think Emery was 17 games this season, Arteta 16. In those games, Emery's team scored 24, Arteta scored 25. Emery's conceded 28 and our tatters have conceded 13. Mm. So we can see a fairly dramatic improvement to the yeah. defence. And I think any manager who came into this Arsenal job uh, at the time when they did would make that their immediate priority. And I am very thankful that that's what Arteta's chosen to do. Yeah, actually, we've a slightly similar question from Rarlet on Twitter, who is at underscore we trats. And he says, or wet rats, maybe that's we trats or wet rats. Who knows? Um, he says the win against Wolves is a pragmatic one. Uh, to mm. use Emery's phrasing, but is the lack of expansive attacking football a stopgap fix to secure results right now? Or do you think this pragmatic style will be a feature of Arteta's tenure? I think um, that it will... How can I put it? I think he's building from the base, from the foundations up, and actually some of the things he's putting in place now aren't dramatically dissimilar to some of the the stratagems a team like Manchester City has to protect the defence. I mean, Arsenal protected the defence in the first half against Wolves principally by having control of the ball. Uh, and that is, I think, the major difference from the way that we play under Unai Emery. So I think that what we do with the ball and the way in which we attack, the patterns of play that we're able to develop in the, in the final third, mm. I'm hoping those are going to develop and become more sophisticated, more penetrative, but actually, I think that what we're doing defensively uh, will be the platform for Mikel Arteta's sort of ultimate ambitions. I liked what he said before. I can't remember whether it was the Norwich game or after the Norwich game or one of the games anyway, where mm. he talked about, you know, the focus on the opposition. Um, but his focus... Uh, paraphrasing again it was about you know being aware of what the opposition are going to do but how we can set ourselves up knowing what they're going to do so that we can hurt them whereas emery always felt like containment yeah rather than you yeah nullifying rather than using potential weaknesses that we've seen i think at the moment there is no other way to do it other than be pragmatic other than to try and you know, get the best out of the players that you have. I'm not necessarily sure if this is the long-term vision for Arteta. I, I think he probably does have something in mind, in you know, as to what he wants the team to be and how he wants it to play. But mm. with the players that he has at the, this moment in time, he has to kind of do it differently. He has to... Yeah. set up in a way which gets the best out of them. Um, I'm sorry to keep hogging the questions. 
Uh, oh, can I just add one thing on that, by the yeah, way? Yeah, sorry, go the, ahead. On, on the pragmatism element of it, it's not just the players that we have, it's also the situation we find ourselves in. I do think that the fact that we're playing as many games as we're playing away from home, you know, that... And also the fact that we played Sheffield United and Wolves um, in pretty close proximity, two teams that both line up three at the back. You know, I do think all these things are playing into what Arteta's doing. He's just trying to accumulate points and win games between now and the end of the season. But I just hope some of those fundamentals he's putting in place can mm. also be carried forward. Uh, this one comes from Clive uh, Clive Palmer at Clive PAFC, and he says, uh, we spoke on the potential use of a back three on the contract extension podcast as it may suit uh, Louise and Pablo Marie, for example. Uh, since we moved to it, things have improved. Is the back three here to stay next season, and should it stay? I know Clive loves the back three, so I know why he's asking that. Um, I, well, I don't see any obvious reason to get rid of it. I mean, what I'm, what I'm really excited about, I mentioned this in part one, is seeing Pepe in the role that Nelson and Saka have played in the last couple of games, where he's got someone outside him, he's a little bit close to the centre forward, he's got potential to sort of play within the width of the penalty box a bit more and be more dangerous. Um, I think because that will tell us a bit more about what we can do going forward mm. in this shape. And I think we still need to learn a little bit about that. But certainly in terms of the the build up through the centre halves and through the through the wing backs, I have been impressed by what we've done. Mm. Uh, and I, I don't find myself thinking with the, with a four, this would be substantially better I also think it really suits Granite Shaka. I just think that we haven't quite got the balance of that attacking five right yet in this system and I'm, I include in that the two wing backs you know because left back left wing back I think Tierney we're all pretty pleased with right wing back there's a bit of uncertainty Maitland-Niles Bellerin Cedric who's going to get the nod there and ahead of that, the three in terms of, you know, the two inside forwards and the centre forward, I think we've not yet seen the right combination there. Mm. And um, I'm intrigued as to what that will be, but I know it will have Pepe in it for sure. What do you think about it? I'm kind of torn. I'm unsure, to be honest, because it really depends what we do in the transfer market in the summer in terms yeah. of our defence, but also our midfield. Because I feel like to be properly comfortable in a back four, our midfield, at least midfield three, uh, needs to be right. And I'm not sure the combination of players that we have uh, is there at the club right now. So can you play with perhaps not the perfect central defensive partnership if you've got the right, defensive midfielder for example um, mm. you know part I, I, of the reason Shaka looks uh, so good in this system is not just the, the passing lanes that he has all around him but the fact that if he does make a mistake or he is out of position there is a third centre half covering for him I mean mm. that that's partly what's useful about it I think if we were playing four at the back our midfield probably would look significantly weaker mm. he, he was also a little bit keen, wasn't he, during the week to play down some of the hype involving William Saliba, which I thought very was key, very yeah. interesting. Um, you know, he has been put on a pedestal already. Mm -hmm. 
this kid, and he is only 19 years of age. He's coming from France. Uh, you know, it, it is problems, injury problems, and it is a very difficult position to play in the Premier League. You know, someone like Lauren Koscielny came to Arsenal at what the age of 24, um, and developed into a really, really good central defender, but he had years of experience. Um, under his belt at that point. Saliba's just 19 years of age. I really do have a lot of hope for him, obviously, like everyone else, but I think we have to be realistic about about how quickly he can make uh, an impact and how quickly he's going to develop and, and be the kind of defender everyone is expecting him to be. I think there is a measure or a level of expectation around Saliba that is perhaps unrealistic. And I just, I, I have some concerns about that because it's not unreasonable to think that it might take a 19-year-old a season or two to properly develop. But he could have two or three bad games and people are going to be writing him off because that's the nature of, of you know, short-term football analysis at the moment, you know? Mm-hmm. Um so I the do, other thing I would say is yeah. I do think there's a kind of temptation and uh, an eagerness to hammer down a system. You know, this is what we play and we're going to play this every game. But I don't think, I honestly don't think Arteta's going to be that coach who, every, you know, like Arsene Wenger, you knew what formation he would play pretty much every single match. Mm. I do think Arteta thinks about it a little bit differently and if he if he needs to tweak it here and there or you know go with a four in one game again to draw a comparison with City as they occasionally do you know switch, switching in and out systems sometimes in the space of a single game I think he will do that I think that it's just such a relentless run at the moment that I really think he looked at the fixture list and I think that he factored in the fact that it would enable him to kind of match up with Sheffield United and Wolves as well and he looked at the personnel he had and he thought this is the pragmatic, appropriate formation to get us through this next period and it's difficult to know if he sticks with it but I think there is a really good case for it especially Given Saliba, I do think it suits. He's used to it, and I think it, it gives him a bit of protection as well. So mm. um, I like a lot about it. So I would like to see more of it. Uh, certainly between now and the end of the season, like you say, transfer activity might change things. What way do you think he's going to set up against Leicester? Then you know mm. they play, or certainly against Palace. Anyway, they played a kind of four four two, didn't they? So yeah, yeah. Yeah. you know, does he need the three at the back? Or, you know, how is he going to match up in terms of, is he going to try and overload them in, in, in their half? Or, or how how do you reckon he's going I, to go? I think he will stick with a three at the back mm. because, you know, if they do play a four four two, it means our central midfield will sort of match them. You know, sometimes the risk with a three at the back is you can get outnumbered in the middle of the park, but I don't see that happening against Leicester. Um, like I say, I mean, it, maybe it'll be too soon for Pepe, given you know what's going on in his life at the moment. But I would really, well, really he like didn't to see actually it. give birth himself, James. He'll be fine. Oh, he didn't give birth. No, oh, I misunderstood. Yeah, so he. he should I was going to say like that would be okay. Yeah, sore still at this stage. But he, um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure he is physically okay. I just wonder. I don't know. Do footballers get any paternity leave? What happens there? I don't know. I mean, he got the day off. Um, it's at the manager's discretion, I guess. Yeah. But well, yeah, I'd love to see him. Do you think we'll see him? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Why not? He'll be on cloud nine. He'll be a happy man, full of joy. Another couple of free kicks. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and another, you get another, another, day, another day off, day off in nine months' time. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, I, I think he will stick with it just because we're in a, a rhythm now and the games come 
so thick and fast. I think, as much as I think he tweaks game to game, and he genuinely does, it's useful to have a, a base, isn't it, in this period where mm. it's all coming so quickly. All right, listen, I'm, I'm absolutely hugging the questions today, and I apologise. I'll give it's you fine. free reign uh, in, a, in a couple of moments' time because I just want to get to this one because we had a load of questions about this, and it ties into what we're talking about in terms of the centre of our defence and what we might do in the transfer market. Josh Robinson, 87, at Josh Robinson, 87, says, it's very obvious We have to offer Shkodran Mustafi a new contract. Do you agree? He's one of the first names on our team sheet. Whereas uh, Sujai Kosh, uh, who's at Sujai Kosh, says Mustafi is going to enter the last year of his contract. Considering his recent performances, should he be given a new contract? And on the Discord, Jaffrey says, what would Mustafi have to do to convince you that he deserves to stay and be first choice? It seems like he's been the most consistent defender we've had since Arteta took over. He has, I think. Um, I think he has. I think. I think Louise has been better at times, but of course he's had his his David Louise moments alongside there. We've only there's only been one very noticeable Shkodran Mustafi moment. I don't think he covered himself in glory at Brighton on the, on the winning goal there, but the the Chelsea game is the one I'm thinking of. Yeah. Um, nonetheless. It, <laughs> I mean, look, I really do have uh, reservations about this player just because of our history with him and, and knowing, <laughs> this sounds funny, but knowing what he's capable of. Um, but I do wonder if there is a case to be made for extending the contract uh, based purely on kind of, not purely, but based largely on economics. I mean, if Arsenal want Mustafi to be part of the squad next season, then they should try and offer him an extension so they don't lose him for nothing at the end of it. Uh, I, I think, you know, given that he's a still a relatively good age and there might be some kind of residual value in him, then I do think there is an argu- a strong argument for that. Do you need more convincing? Um, I view this, I view his, his redemption, I view his recent form as an opportunity for Arsenal and for him. Mm. Like... Look, he 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 had been uh, a disaster, really. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. uh, under Emery, and he had all those rickets under Wenger as well. And and yeah, there's no getting away from you, it. No, there's no. You can't escape that. And and we made the point earlier on that that Arteta is judging guys on what they've done for him, and I think that's fair. I think that's fair. You know, from his point of view, I think that's fair management. It's good yeah, management, exactly. From my point of view, though. The way I would look at it, I, I'm I'm happy that he is playing well. I'm kind of happy for him on a personal level because, you know, his career looked like it was in the toilet and he's come through and he's had this really nice kind of redemption arc, right? It's turned around for him. And I think the perfect way for that redemption arc to be completed is for him to go at a time when things have been kind of smoothed over, right? Um, he's not going to leave as public enemy number one. He's not arch villain or anything like that. I think his stock among Arsenal fans is much higher than it was. And yeah, it would be... send off, I think, if he went now. Yeah. Exactly. He would get a very good send off. He would get a great um, thank you from fans who, you know, 12 months ago would not have been that generous with him. And for... 
for reasons that I, I completely understand, even if I think at times, you know, the abuse and, and what have you was was too much. Um, that, you know, that people are sending him stupid stuff on social media and what have you. I think criticism of him as a player was perfectly fair and legitimate. So for me, I think what we've got is, is a player who, who had a really bad time, who played poorly, who is capable uh, at any moment of making silly mistakes. W- one thing I will say is that since Arteta took over, I haven't really seen Mustafi sliding the way that Mustafi mm. used to slide. He stayed on his feet, and that is one of the big criticisms that that we had of him uh, as a defender. I just think, you know, he's a player whose stock was so low that we would practically have had to give him away. And now we could possibly sell him. I think from his point of view as well, he will have options now that he would not have had before. Mm. And I think if Arsenal are really serious about rebuilding the defence, about... um Moving on from certain players who have had a checkered past with us, I think this is an opportunity for all concerned. For us to go in a different direction, say thank you very much, well done, congratulations, you played well, Um, let's call it a day here and everyone can go away feeling relatively happy with it. That would be, that's just my, what I would do and what I would like to see what the club are going to do. I, I don't know, but I just, I just still have too many reservations about, you know, what we've seen from Mustafi in the previous three years. And I think it would be just a nice way to end it. Yeah. I mean, it'd be great to end it by selling him, you know, and getting some money for him, which seemed impossible mm. at a certain point in this. Um, I think what it really comes down to the coach though, doesn't it? I mean, if the coach says, I need this player, Mm. I want this player, then I think the club have got to back that, you know, and and whatever reservations fans might have about it, if if that's the coach's opinion, you know, then, then, uh, you know, I'm all for it. Well, I think what we're seeing um, from Arteta's team selections is that Mustafi is, at least from the current crop of central defenders we have, a player that he rates. Like, he doesn't play Socrates. What's Socrates played? About three minutes, you know, since we, yeah. since we returned after lockdown. I think he's, has he had one appearance, a late substitute appearance, maybe? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the fact that he's picking, say, Kolasinac over Rob Holding is... Mm. I know a lot of people have said he wants a left-footed player in there, but... Mm-hmm. I worry a little that it says something about what he thinks about holding it more, than, for, for more than Kolasinac's suitability for that position. Yeah, I think it, I think it says, a, well, something about both. We had a few Kolasinac questions, actually. I might as well dig it out now. Um, but, 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 but. This was a quote from uh, Football365 by Mike OC12. And Football365 said, um, Kolasinac has been quietly brilliant. Five tackles, five interceptions and two clearances, all out of position. And Mike just asked, are we being too harsh on Kola? I think quietly brilliant is way, way over-egging the pudding because I, I watched Kolasinac on Saturday against Wolves and sometimes sometimes you don't see the stats, if that makes sense, in a player's performance. Because I was doing the player ratings afterwards and I 
one of the things I do is I, you know, check out the check out the stats and see, you know, what they've done um, in relation to their position, particularly the defenders. You're looking at tackles and interceptions and clearances and, and things like that. And I was actually surprised at how many Kolasinac uh, had to his name mm-hmm. on Saturday. I, 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 I look at him and I see a really clumsy player who's not very good on the ball, um, which doesn't mean he can't pass it to an, a, a teammate, but I just, I mean, in terms of what he can do with the ball, I think it's very, very limited. I think there were some some giveaways and some free kicks conceded, which, you know, maybe are part of the confirmation bias that I might have about him as a player anyway. Um, so the stats were surprising, and I think I've got to give him some credit for that, for sure. Because if we talk about players buying in and players being committed and players doing what the manager wants them to do, you know, from a defensive point of view, he he contributed on Saturday mm. against Wolves. I just, again, I don't feel assured with him in that position. I don't feel any reassurance um, about him as a defender. I think where we've seen the best of Kalasinac is where Tierney plays. It's as a wingback. It's getting into the opposition third. I don't think he is a good defender, which is why I have these concerns about holding and, and his lack of use. So I, I don't know that we're being necessarily too harsh on Kolasinac. Credit to him for what he did, but I also think it's right to... to well, it's right. In, it's very difficult for me to feel calm and collected about his defending because again this isn't based on one game it's based on everything we've seen from him since he joined he just isn't really a very good defender and I think on the ball he's extremely limited so for me he'd be he'd be uh, he'd be someone I'd be looking to move on in the summer yeah I mean I I would let him go personally before Mustafi I mean I I think Kolasinac is kind of one of the less able players in our squad. And I know he's good as a wing-back. He's basically good in, <laughs> when he when he has small areas of ground to cover. So he's quite good when he sort of starts high up the pitch and just has to get in behind and swing and cross from the left-hand side. Mm. And then he's OK. He's OK as this third centre-half because you're not asking a great deal of running up and down the pitch from him. But he's not someone who I'm a, a, a massive fan of. I mean... We did this a few months ago, but it might be worth doing again. True story on Twitter says, could you please run us through Arsenal's nine centre-backs in a stick-or-twist style Um <laughs> I'm going to do it for you, okay? Okay. Do I have to make the stick-or-twist? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Socrates. Twist. Because, I mean, it's clear Arteta doesn't write him. Uh, uh, Mustafi Twist Twist you were earlier I said earlier uh, Pablo Marie It's going to be a stick, stick Isn't it Yeah David Luiz I think it's a stick Whether what I say uh, I don't think it matters Because he's got that new deal So he's a stick Yeah Kalasnach Twist Twist uh, Mavropanos Twist And then Rob Holding That's the tricky one Isn't it Personally I would stick. I think there's a player there. Um, it is worrying, though, mm. that the coach 
clearly doesn't uh, feel quite the same way. I mean, look, maybe the physical elements are part of that. You know, we're always talking about Bellerin's injury, Holding's injury was mm. was really significant too. Maybe that's a factor, but it worries me that we are playing with three centre halves and he can't, can't get, get in yeah. out there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. For a guy who's kind of Chambers, but I feel like that's you that's know he's kind of not in consideration, is he, at the moment anyway? Yeah. For his, his um, yeah, of course. So you know, Chambers is not going anywhere. Um, yeah, you can see how there's some work to do in that area of the pitch come summer. For sure, for sure. I mean, Saliba's mm. definitely arriving, but I wouldn't be surprised if there was another potentially, depending on who moves on. Mm. Okay, do you want to do another one, seeing as I did a few? Uh, or? Yeah, uh, I quite liked this one. Um, so this is from Gyro A. Jaramillo on Twitter, and they said, we're creating Bernliano Lenotinez, Arsenal keeper extraordinaire. What do we wish Emmy had from Burned or vice versa? He says, for me, if Emmy is as good one-on-one as Leno, then the Argentine tops him in distribution, crosses, reflexes, and size. Certainly his distribution is is superior. Um, mm. His kicking and his, his he's very comfortable on the ball. His size, I think he is bigger as well, isn't he, than Leno? I think Leno's a big yeah. guy, but, but Martinez is, is quite a bit bigger. Um, Leno's shot-stopping is excellent. We have, I mean, Martinez has made some very good saves as well. I mean, we had a question as well from... Bum, bum, bum. Let me have it up here. It comes from Gary Lawrence, who's at Gary the Gooner 56, who says, if Martinez continues his excellent form to the end of the season, could he be a genuine threat to Leno's position as the club's number one goalkeeper? Um, I mean, the hmm, quality... Yeah. I mean, if you could give Leno Martinez's distribution, you've got a very, very solid goalkeeper there. But I, you know, I've I've said this before about Leno that I really like him, and I think he's been very, very good for us. But is he a bit one of those goalkeepers that looks good because he's really busy? And Vito Minone effect, kinda. You know, just is he one of those? I've I've had this in the back of my mind that if you're a team who is a bit more dominant. Is he the right kind of goalkeeper for that team? I, I will say this about Martinez. Mm. He looks good even when he doesn't make many saves. And I don't know if that makes any sense, but against Wolves, for example, he, I think the only save he made was the one in the third minute when he rushed out and blocked Traore. But his there are other moments in games where, I don't know if it's his presence or his handling... But he just has a very assured... Do you know what I mean? Yeah, there was a cross, wasn't there, in the second yeah. half. I can't remember what it was. It, You know, it looked kind of spectacular. It was a fairly, I think, routine cross. But he just mm. sort of got the arms up there and plucked it out of the air and made... It looked dominant, didn't it? You know? Mm. Um, so, yeah, he does have a bit more presence, I think, than than Leno. Um, I'm Look... I, I'm happy that Martinez has come in and done really well. I think Arteta said afterwards, look, you know, it's okay to play well for three, four games or eight or ten yeah. games. You've got to do it consistently. Um, which is right. Which is absolutely right. It, you know, 
we've got what five or six games left this season in the Premier League and hopefully a couple more in the FA Cup so you know we'll see what he can produce between now and then um, but I like the idea that there's there's now a bit of a battle you know at goalkeeper I like the mm. idea that now there's a bit of a battle at right back you know I'm yeah. uh, I think Cedric has looked okay in the games that he's played um, it's quite funny that some people are 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 um, you know, trying to make the case that Cedric playing okay in a game and a half has somehow put the death knell on Hector Bellerin's Arsenal career. You know, I think Cedric has been fine, but what we have is a little bit of competition now uh, between both mm. of those players, and that is a good thing. Absolutely a good thing for the team. So we have that at goalkeeper. Que sera, sera, as far as I'm concerned. I'm not, like, invested so much in any player, really, that I would say... You know, he has to start, he has to play. Um, you know, he's so much better than the other guy that there's no choice. This is not like, um, you know, Aubameyang has to start because he's our best goal scorer. But yeah. everywhere else, pretty much everywhere else on the pitch, there are there are uh, battles to be had and places to be won. And let it be on merit. Mm. Absolutely. I mean, I have to say, though, I am really impressed by... The, the psychology of Emmy Martinez. I mean, it's it's such an odd thing, I think, to be a backup goalkeeper. And he's been at Arsenal for 10 years now. And he's retained through that, this focus that he wants to make it there, that he wants to be number one. Even when that wasn't particularly realistic from the outside, he has been absolutely determined to do it. And stepping into this team, you know, it's a massive opportunity. Wolves was only his 10th Premier League appearance of any kind. Um, but it, they, it, it, he hasn't betrayed any nerves, really. I mean, he looks incredibly calm and incredibly self-confident. And I guess that's where mm. you know, that belief comes from, that he thinks he's good enough. But I, I do find that sort of, that, that attitude psychologically impressive to come in and be like, this is my big shot and not be nervous about it and just believe that you belong, despite not really having the experience. Um so I'm really pleased for him. I'm really, really pleased for him. And I, I hope it continues. I mean, he's got some massive games between now and the end of the season. He's facing Liverpool. He's facing Tottenham. He's got an FA Cup semi-final against yeah. Man City. We'll know more about him by the end of the season. But thus far, you'd have to say that a goalkeeper were in pretty decent shape, especially mm. with Leno coming back from injury. For sure. Okay, here is a question from Will on Twitter, who says... Uh, I'm hearing Lacazette could be getting a new deal. Do you guys think this is a good idea? And on the Discord, we had a question from uh, Merrill S, who says, if we keep Aubameyang and sell Laka, considering they're such good mates, do you think there's a chance that Aubameyang wouldn't be as happy at the club in training, etc., and that could affect his performances? Hmm. I mean, I have to say, I I saw Arteta's quotes about Lacazette and his contract, and I didn't infer from that that he was on the precipice of getting a new yeah, deal. Yeah, me either. Me either. Uh, there was, I can't remember what he exactly said. Should we dig it out? Yeah, I'll dig them out. I have them here somewhere. They're somewhere on Arsblog News, so bear with me. Um, uh, but, you know, we'll get there eventually, but it was kind of, well, you know, we all need to have a think about the situation sort of thing. Yeah, he said we need 
to have a chat about the next step with him and get his ideas and feelings. He said, now is not the time to talk about contract situations. We still have time. We'll do it in the right moment. But he said, I'm, uh, I'm really happy with him. He's a player I've always liked, even when I wasn't here, because of what he brings to the team, his qualities, his ability, his work rate, etc., etc. I mean, it sounded to me like, you know, a manager who is going to talk up a player, you know, going into a crucial period of what's left of this season, who's just scored his first goal away from home, you know, in such a long time, he's not going to be um, saying something which might cast doubt over his future at the club because that would just be counterproductive, wouldn't it? And, you know, when you're looking to get more out of a player, you're going to be positive about him, particularly publicly. But like you, I didn't really read into that. It's not a categorical, yes, we want him to stay. Yes, it's important that we tie him down in, in the same way that, uh, you know, it was about um, Aubameyang. Uh, or Saka, for that matter. It's not. It's not the way he talks about Aubameyang at all. And I know there's another 12 months on the deal, but uh, I mean, I sort of took from that that Arteta probably has a sense that Lacazette isn't playing quite as many minutes as he'd like, um, and it probably will suit him to go somewhere else and be first choice. I, I think that there's kind of a, a natural parting of the ways uh, potentially this summer it does depend on if there's a buyer or a deal that Arsenal can use him on though yeah yeah Do and if I- they don't it, listen it's not a disaster you know it's a bit more depth up front and I think that's fine mm. but um, would you I give think- him a new deal no no I wouldn't no, no. I wouldn't either and I would if I could sell now I would because you know his value's not going to go up, is it? No, no, not if he's only got twelve months left on his uh, on his contract next summer. Um, yeah, I wouldn't give him a new deal. I think if we could move him on this summer, that would probably be the right time to do it. Uh, it seems clear that in terms of the pecking order that Arteta has, Eddie and Ketty has has got in front of him. Um, mm. If we're looking for the future, if we're looking to raise money to rebuild. There are there aren't a lot of players who would get you a lot of money in the transfer market, you know. Um, no. Lacazette is probably one of the more valuable assets that we have, but we are at that two year point where either you give a player a new deal or you sell. And I think personally, if the deal were right, and like you say, if there was a if there was a way we could do a deal for Lacazette with a club. Um, who have a player that we might like, then I think we should try and go for it. Do you think Aubameyang would be sad or would it be so sad for him that it would affect his performances? I hadn't thought of that. Um, I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, I think he, you know, he's a pro at the end of the day and I think he does have other relationships in the squad, Aubameyang. Uh, And I think sometimes the Lacazette thing is maybe overemphasised. Um, do you? He's he's a footballer. Footballers know. Footballers know how it works. You know, it doesn't mean he's. He probably not- already has a sense of how it might work. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Exactly. But like, they're not gonna. It's not like they're not gonna be friends just because Lacazette goes somewhere else. I mean, do you think? For example, if Aubameyang really wanted to go, if he had a, like this amazing offer from, let's say, Barcelona and he decided to take that offer, do you think he would stay because it would make Lacazette sad if he went? Come on. <laughs> no. But, I mean, I suppose the only way, the only reason it's worth considering it is, like, do we think it in any way plays into 
Aubameyang's own decision, you know? Yeah. I, I find that difficult to believe, Yeah, to be honest. Me too. Me too. Uh, I think there are bigger things at play than, than that. Um, okay, cool. Oh, here's a, an interesting question slash point from Dumbledore's Gunt on the, the Discord. How much money would you pay to have mics on the touchline for the water breaks and general manager pickup? It really feels like the sporting experience at the moment is moving towards the American model with more on-field coaching, especially during the breaks. And Arteta looks to be at the forefront, man managing and directing from the bench. Mm. Would love to hear everything he has to say. I would love to hear it too, but I, you know, I can understand why we don't. You know, I mm. think it's I, I. It's sort of fly on the wall stuff, but I think managers and coaches need to be able to deal or talk to their players without that stuff being picked up, you know? Mm. I don't think it's quite right. It's why those, like, um, like the Man City documentary and the Tottenham documentary that's coming out, they're just so... uh, I couldn't watch the Man City one, to be honest. I just find that kind of stuff a bit toe-curling. Um, uh, yeah. I think managers need to be able to to instruct and talk to their players with a measure of privacy or an expectation of that. You know, mm. there are things that they say that we shouldn't hear. There are things that they say perhaps about the opposition or certain opposition players or, you know, if there's a guy who's weak on the opposition team and they're telling him, you know, to target that player, that's part and parcel of, of coaching and, and what you do and how you operate. But it's not really something that should be public, you know, because what happens, headlines happen and then it becomes, it just feeds into the the bullshit and the drama and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, while on a personal level, I would love to hear it. I don't think, I don't think we should. It's, it's interesting though. I think, I thought TV companies would sort of make more use of the novelty and unusual situation that we find ourselves in. I mean, did you see that clip from BT Sport that was doing the rounds on social media of Mason Greenwood's goal against Bournemouth? No. And it was a behind-the-goal camera angle, and Greenwood is sort of attacking on the right flank, and you can hear the defender, it's all subtitled, saying, you know, don't let him turn, don't let him turn. He turns and probably puts it in the top corner. And then you see the goalkeeper, you hear what he says to the Bournemouth defender. They're sort of getting to a bit of a row, a bit of a slanging match. And look, I understand people feeling like it's a bit sort of behind the curtain and a bit uh, voyeuristic in some ways. But it is a fascinating insight. And I thought Telly would deliver a bit more of that, really, mm. given given the situation we're in. I don't think anyone expects it in the long term, but just, you know, to try and make the coverage of these uh, matches a little bit more interesting. Um, yeah, but I, I'm i looking forward to attending a game at the Emirates Stadium, hopefully in the, in the press box, because you're not too far from the dugout there. And uh, I'll be interesting. It'll be interesting. I, I was told that you could very clearly hear Mikel Arteta uh, during the Norwich game. So I'm looking forward to hearing what he's got to say uh, when I do eventually get there. Yeah, I mean, I think they must have mics near the managers turned down or off. Yeah, but because sure. of because of the things that they're you know shouting and and it gets picked up all over the place. I mean, he 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 speaks to them in a variety of languages as well. Mm. Arteta, he mm. speaks Spanish to some of them. He speaks English to some. He speaks French, French to some. Yeah. You know, so 
that's that's a, an interesting aspect of 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 what he does, um, which I, I I find that quite interesting actually because I would have thought um, not that there's a like a universal language or or anything like that, but um, you know the way some managers well English is what we speak in the dressing room on the training ground on the pitch you know to have this kind of cohesion um, mm. and he's speaking to them in in all kinds of of languages look you know it's not that I'm not interested in it I just wonder if a microphone was placed front and center um, when they're doing the the drinks break huddle and the manager is instructing his team immediately what he says is going to become sanitized. It changes the way that he can communicate with his players. And I don't think that's, I don't think that's right. You know, even if other sports have, have grown used to it or, or what have you, I, I don't think it's the right way to go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Fair enough. I think we Any got, more questions? yeah, I've got one more um, here. Okay. And it comes from the real Twatterman uh, <laughs> on Twitter, who's at Twatterman. And okay. he says, Would you take Cazorla back at 35 years of age for a season? Do you think his body could cope with Premier League football, perhaps with limited restricted appearances, and perhaps in lieu of taking on a coaching role with Arteta in seasons ahead? I don't think his body could cope with it. That's my quick answer. Mm. Um, I think Arsenal made that decision, you know, when they when they let him go. I mean, they, they will have been surprised, no doubt, by how he's done. I think everyone has been. Um, and it's almost miraculous, to be honest. But I think part of it is is the fact that he's not playing the Premier League and he's not playing quite so many games. Mm. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't bring him back. I, I think it's wonderful for him that he's playing again and playing well. And I, to be honest, I would feel bad almost disrupting it. It seems like he's got a perfect little setup at Villarreal. What about you? Yeah, look, you know, on an emotional level, it would be great to see him back out on the pitch in an Arsenal shirt, but I don't think it's realistic. I, I've said this before. I think it, it really suited him to go back home, to go back to Spain, to go, to go back to Villarreal, a club, um, you know, that he knows very well, he feels very comfortable at. The weather, the climate, you know, after that injury and, and the horrors that he went through, I think he just needed a bit of a clean slate. I think at this point, at 35, you know, when you look at what Arteta is trying to do, what kind of effort and endeavour and, and work rate he's looking for uh, from his players and, you know, his midfielders are a key part of that, I think it'd be too much to ask uh, of, of Santi Cazorla at 35 years of age. I think we can enjoy what he's done in La Liga this year. He's been absolutely brilliant and made a great contribution to Villarreal's season. Um, and I think we should be happy for him on that level. And, and um, you know, it's it's a, a real shame the way it ended for him at Arsenal, but I don't think it's in any way realistic. I think the idea of him and Arteta working together on a coaching level is certainly... Uh, a fascinating one, isn't it? I saw some tweets about that and, you know, how the two guys, they, they, they really, um, they really get on very well. Um, there was a great interview actually. Uh, I think we have the video somewhere on Arsblog News. If you could, go, if you go on the search section of Arsblog News and uh, put in Arteta Cazorla interview, I think they did this thing where they interviewed each other. 
Um, this was way back, and and Cazorla was already talking about Arteta as the kind of guy who was, you know, a manager. Like, he was the captain at that time, and he was talking about how well-respected he was in the dressing room and, and how he, you know, saw him as a coach and all that kind of stuff. So maybe working together is something they could do uh, down the line, but, you know, Cazorla playing under Arteta, I just don't, I don't see it, so... So there you I'm go. with you on that one. All right. Okay, well, look, everybody, thank you as ever for listening. We've got a game against uh, Leicester on Tuesday night. So fingers crossed we can make it a five out of five in terms of wins. Um, Mikel Arteta and his Lego hair against Brendan Rodgers and his shark teeth. So we'll keep fingers crossed for that one. Thank you for listening, subscribing, uh, being a member on Patreon and all that good stuff. We'll catch you on the next one. Bye-bye.